as now we look to our Lord together in prayer. And our Father, what we're doing now is we are considering this redemption story from eternity past that makes its way generation by generation as described in the Older Testament into the Newer Testament where today we find a, a young lady minding her own business but all of a sudden she finds out that her God interrupts and then she's told that she's going to be with child and this child's name should be Jesus you are the God of the interruption you break up the status quo you stir hearts that seem to be bent one way completely transform a person to head in the opposite direction. And it's your grace. And it's grace, Father, that brings us together in this second of the three services as well as the live stream this morning. And it's grace, Father, that allows us to be able to worship you in spirit and truth. So, Father, thank you for interrupting our lives. Thanking you for sending Jesus Christ into this world to die on the cross for our sins. Now, Father, as we are opening up your word and exploring this text together, praying once again that you would warm these hearts, that you would engage these minds, and that you would shape these wills. As again, now, Father, we've come here to see Jesus and him only. We're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. They thought it to be, very frankly, impossible he wrote that with no other subjects coming to mind, my focus seemed to be transfixed upon one theme. Against my will, he said, I resolved to say something of the birth of Jesus Christ. His name was Frank Ringsmuth. He was an editor of a major newspaper in the United States. And his editorial section was well known for being everything opposed to anything pertaining to biblical Christianity. He went on to say that I did not know what I was writing. And there was a power which drove me on. It was Christmas week. I wrote of his birth and poverty and of his life of suffering. The central point of the article is the argument that those who are blaspheming Christ now are of the same character of those who crucified him. But I began to realize that tears were flowing down my cheeks. He tells us that when his assistant brought back the proofs that afternoon, he was alarmed and questioned Ringsmooth as to whether or not he really intended to publish this, it seemed, Christianity. I answered that I intended to do so, and that what astonished me was that for the first time I realized that what I had written, what I thought was impossible to print, had now become a reality. I knew I'd lose subscriptions. 
I knew that there were going to be pushback coming my way. But amazingly, he tells us, news of the Christmas story spread quickly, and soon the paper had gained twice as many subscriptions as it had lost. It was one of the great moments in newspaper history in America, the moment of Frank Ringsmuth. Because as a result of writing this article, he explored Christianity in its fullest, came to put saving faith in Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation, and eventually entered into Christian service as an evangelist, telling others, particularly in the secular realm, the academic secular realm, about the evidence of Jesus Christ and God's plan of salvation. What stirred my heart when I read that story for the first time was he thought it was impossible. And then his colleagues, when they read the article, they turned to one another and said, this is impossible. But then you and I smile when we read of verse 37. For nothing will be impossible with God. This morning I want to confront the impossibilities of life. I'm going to draw three significant aspects that we see here when we're considering the story of Christ's birth unfolding in front of our very eyes. I want you to see how the impossible has become the possible and then relate it to your life. Out of verse 26 down through 30, I want you to notice first of all with me that as you and I as we consider the story of Christ's birth and how it's unfolding here. Begin here and note with me the unlikely circumstances chosen by God. You start off with these words. It's in the sixth month, and you say, Gary, what do we mean by the sixth month? Sixth month of what? Well, the answer is that this is the sixth month since Elizabeth has found out that she's with child. And she's carrying a child whose name would be John the Baptist. And so now here a woman in her latter stage of life is carrying the forerunner to Jesus Christ. And this is an unlikely circumstance. This would look like in the eyes of the secular perspective to be an impossibility. But nothing is impossible with God. So now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel is sent by God. He's sent from God. And I remember several years back taking the congregation, those of you that were around then, through the book of Daniel on Sunday mornings. And in Daniel chapter 8, and again in Daniel chapter 9, there's this angel by the name of Gabriel who appears on the scene and his purpose is to disclose to Daniel what will be eventually taking place in God's redemption story. And it unfolds, and it takes place. Centuries have gone by, and lo and behold, once again, Gabriel appears on the scene. God interrupts. 
And God has a way of interrupting us in the unlikely circumstances of life and in the unlikely settings of life, through unlikely means in life, how has God interrupted your life? Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel, and this is now the third reference to him in the Bible, he sent from God to a city of Galilee, that's the upper section of Israel, to a setting known as Nazareth. Let's look at a map that appears on the screen. And as you're looking at the map at this point, what I want you to be able to see here is that in the upper section is Nazareth. Now you're with me in Israel, and we're going to hop on the Yitzhak Rabin Highway, make our way downward to Route 6, and then head onwards till we get to Jerusalem. And we're going to notice here, when you and I get to Jerusalem, that's taken us roughly about two hours. We're probably going to take this route here. The ravine goes that way. About two hours. Stop along the way, maybe, and get your hummus. I'll nudge you because you're eating too much hummus. And we continue to make our way until we get a sense of our bearings of how movements would take place from Nazareth onwards down to Bethlehem and how Bethlehem is really not that far from Jerusalem. And what's God doing? I would have thought that God would have chosen Rome, not Nazareth, to make such an announcement of a baby to be born to a woman by the name of Mary. And this baby known as Jesus, the Son of God. And if not, if not in Rome, I would certainly have picked Jerusalem. But what is God doing up here in Nazareth? Nazareth was a setting of roughly about 500 people. Nazareth was a setting of roughly 60 acres. This seems so microscopic. While God's sovereign plan seems so macroscopic. But I want you to ponder with me that you and I are not to despise small beginnings. And you and I are not to despise small settings. Because God delights to be able to take what others will overlook for the sake of achieving his purposes for his glory. God in his sovereign purposes chose Nazareth. There will be a Nathaniel who posed this question when he is introduced to the idea of Jesus. Can anything good come from Nazareth? But then on that cross, God in his sovereign purposes would have Pontius Pilate pen Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews in multiple languages. And so now what God is doing is that he's taking something that everybody else would overlook, or such as a Mary, someone that everybody else would overlook, and in a setting, you see, of roughly about 500 people, he would choose to do something macroscopic in a setting that seems to be so microscopic, but that's God. And he takes what's seemingly impossible and he creates a global movement 
and shows that through his sovereign purposes, this is just how possible it is that Jesus would come from Nazareth. When the Wright brothers flew, 1903, a man said, I don't believe it. Nobody's going to fly. And if anybody's going to fly, it won't be anybody from Dayton, Ohio. Guess where the Wright brothers came from? What God has a way of doing, you see, is surprising us with the events of life. And so now, in this hidden sector of geography, God has chosen to send Gabriel, and now what is involved with eternity, the timeless, comes in in a very timely way. And he comes in verse 27 to a virgin. This is significant. Betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. Now, those that are involved in understanding the history and the legalities of that time period know that the betrothal period, a person was legally married. Marriage had not been consummated at that point, but they were legally married. Now, what's fascinating is that God then chose the betrothal period, not before the betrothal period, not subsequent to the betrothal period. If before the betrothal period, well, then she wouldn't have as her husband a man by the name of Joseph, who was of the line of David. Subsequent to the betrothal period, and then whose child truly is this? Could she say that this is the Son of God? No. God, in his sovereign purposes, takes in such a timely way a strategy that will unfold within the womb of Mary the plan of redemption. And the virgin's name was Mary. And now... What God has a way of doing is interrupting life. Has he interrupted your life with his plan for your life? Maybe somebody came along somewhere along the road and shared something about Jesus with you. That was not an accident in time. That was an appointment with time. And so now here's Mary, and he comes to her and says, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. And notice her reaction. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. So now, you're hanging out with me, and we're hanging in Nazareth, and let's look at what appears on the screen at this point because we make our way right around here. We're standing, and this is known as the Church of the Annunciation. Others reference it as St. Gabriel's Church. The Annunciation has been known throughout history as the announcement of Jesus' birth to Mary. Look at the next picture. This is known as Mary's Well. We inch closer to it. I remember standing there watching some guys off in the distance. The elderly men in Israel, they like to play backgammon. So there were a couple of guys playing backgammon off to the side of the picture. You inch closer, and your tour guide will tell you at this point, or maybe I would just want to interject it for you, that there was only one spring in all of Nazareth by which the women would come to draw water. 
this is the setting that most likely Gabriel introduced himself to Mary. Drawing water for a woman in that day and age was an ordinary thing. But what God delights to do is to bring the extraordinary into the ordinary. Someone's minding his own business until somewhere along the way, one who loves Jesus and is committed to full-spectrum discipleship introduces Jesus into the mindset. And life is never the same again. God interrupts your life. No accidents in time. Appointments with time. But what I so often find is that in the, in the interruptions of life, God has a way of upping the angst where maybe a certain individual becomes afraid of the change that's occurring here and this encounter being experienced here. And Mary's no different. And so you're back to the text. And in verse 30, the angel picking up on her anxiety, her fears, says to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. He used her, her name. He used her name. She might be wondering, how does she know my name? And who, where did he come from anyways? Everybody knows everybody around here. For you have found favor with God. He addresses her fears. What interruptions to life have produced fears in your life? It was during World War II that a military governor met with George Patton in Sicily. And when he was talking to Patton, he was praising him for his courage. But the general replied, sir, I'm not a brave man. Truth is, I've never been within the sound of gunshot or in sight of battle in my whole life. I wasn't so afraid that I had sweat in the palm of my hands. But if you've read Patton's autobiography, there is this significant statement that appears along the way by the general, quote, I learned very early in my life never to take counsel of my fears. Now, what God has got to do is that when he breaks in and interrupts people's life again and again and again, as you see throughout the scriptures, there will be this phrase, be not afraid or do not be afraid, I am with you. Joshua encountered a similar expression when Moses had passed away. Joshua now is facing leading the people out of the familiar into the unfamiliar. But God wants to do something of significance. He will often interrupt your life and interrupt my life. And what was once seemingly impossible now becomes possible because God is God. And Mary has got to come to grips with that. Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God, and you want to say, Mary, at this point, don't take counsel with your fears. Take counsel with your God. You doing that? Now, once you and I have drawn out this first aspect of the tension between the impossible and the possible, 
we're ready now for the second major aspect that comes out of these verses. Because in verse 31, down through verse 33, as you and I consider how the story of Christ's birth unfolds, note not only the unlikely circumstances chosen by God, 26 to 30, but now the eternal reign promised by God, 31 through 33. And now Gabriel is going to use what I call a visual word communicated through verbal means. Every time you see the word behold in the Bible, it's meant for you to be able to say, I see. And when you say, I see, you in return are using a visual word to describe a verbal expression given to you. I see. He says, behold, he wants Mary to see. And so when you and I begin to ponder how we develop insight, the word sight is found in the word insight. And so, behold, you will conceive in your womb, bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, which means literally God is our salvation. And he will be great. And we call the Son, he'll be called the Son of the Most High. Now you can imagine at this point because that Mary's eyes are just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And because Gabriel has interrupted the norms of her life. And when God gets bigger and bigger and bigger in your life, it's because you have allowed the interruptions of life to produce great insights about life. And this is what is about to happen now for Mary. Isn't fast? And again and again, we're told, and she treasured such things in her heart. She was a reflective woman. But Gabriel wants her to have the greatness of God before her. And the entire redemption plan understood by her. And God makes no mistakes, you see. And so he understands the lineage and how he had made a significant promise to the line of David about an eternal kingdom. And here and of all places, Nazareth, not in Jerusalem, the city of David is not even being considered here. But Nazareth, here's this young lady who is being told, the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. Now, being a young Jewish lady, she would have been informed and taught again and again of the richness, the great promise given to God to David and David's line. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 13, Nathan had informed David, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God is establishing a forever kingdom, you see. It would be repeated twice more, three times, in that great chapter of chapter 7 of 2 Samuel. Now, when he says that this kingdom is meant to be forever, 
then the significance of people walking down the streets of Jerusalem and Pontius Pilate had placed on the placard above Jesus Christ then that, that title, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And the Jews know that this kingdom promise means that it's to be a forever kingdom, which means we have to have a forever king, and the king is dying on a cross. What do you do with that promise? Is God negating the promise, going back on the promise? You know better. Three days later, Jesus raised the king from the grave. And there's Mary, who would have had to have been pondering the significance of all these things when she stood at the cross and pondered how her son was hanging on that cross with Jesus of Nazareth. And she's recalling her experience with Gabriel and Nazareth, king of the Jews, and knowing the theology of the forever kingdom and the forever king, trying to put all this together. And furthermore, you and I are told in verse 33, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, if you've been to Austria, in St. Stephen's Cathedral in Austria, Vienna, you're going to see carved letters, A-E-I-O-U, and they stand for a Latin phrase, which means Austria is destined to rule the world. Don't think so. But then, if you've been to London, you're reminded of how in the heyday of British rule, it used to be said that the sun never sets on the British Empire. But you're insightful. You use sight and you connect sight to insight because the British flag consists of three crosses superimposed on one another, in essence saying, and the sun never sets on the cross. But here now we find that God is delivering through Jacob the idea that this one within the womb of Mary will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom, there will be no end. And in your older testament, there was Balaam in the book of Numbers who predicted that a star and a scepter would arise out of Jacob that would crush all his enemies. And then, as you and I noted three times in 2 Samuel 7, particularly verse 16, it was emphasized that this kingdom would be forever. And now here's Gabriel, and he is repeating the promise that had been given in the Older Testament to David, now repeating it to Mary up there in Nazareth, overlooked Nazareth, saying that the one within her womb will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Can you imagine how big her eyes are now? But you see, the interruptions of life are the times in which the great insight is offered to life. I love the Union Oyster House in Boston on the Freedom Trail. It's a picture of Joe, Ben, Jessica, and Jessica, my two Jessicas, uh, standing together under the sign of the Oyster House. They've been walking the Freedom Trail. And 
in the oyster house is where they, they would debate theology and politics. And Daniel Webster used to have his share of oysters there. And one time, while he was being quizzed over his beliefs, he said, I believe Jesus Christ to be the Son of God. The miracles which he wrought establish in my mind this personal authority and render it proper for me to believe whatever he asserts. I believe, therefore, <coughs> all his declarations, as well when he declares himself to be the Son of God, as when he declares any other proposition. And I ponder how those words relate to these words. For you see of his kingdom there will be no end. But there's Mary. Is this you? You're up to verse 34 now. And she's got a question. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be? Since I am a virgin. Now, draw a line back to verse 18, same chapter, where relative Zechariah had said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Speaking of one, John the Baptist, who will be born to Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now, God disciplined Zechariah for his question, but God doesn't discipline Mary for his, this question. Why? Because Zechariah's question was posed on the basis of skepticism. Mary's question is posed on the basis of surprise. She's utterly amazed that God would do this. And would do this for her. How can this be? Since I'm a virgin. But as I'll share, as I've always shared on Christmas Eve, for us to be able to connect Bethlehem to Jerusalem, the cradle to the cross, we've got to understand that what God has done is that he has put together 100% humanity with 100% divinity, two natures within one person, so we would have the, be, have the perfect sacrifice to die in our place for our sins. And this is part of the strategy that's unfolding in Nazareth that will make its way southward towards Jerusalem. But you're up now to the third aspect. And when you and I, when we consider the story of Christ's birth and how it unfolds here, and we've looked thus far at the unlikely circumstances chosen by God and the eternal reign promised by God, you're up to verse 34 through 38 and the strategic plan initiated by God. And what's this plan entail? How is he going to make this work? He's going to answer this question of surprise from the lips of Mary at this point. The angel in the Q&A session with Mary at Mary's well answers, Look, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. She's a virgin. You know, she knows. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore, the child to be born will be called holy. The son of God. You mean the son of Mary is also the son of God? 
Now how big are her eyes? And how do you explain this? Well, he helps her. And behold, another visual to help the verbal. Your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month of her who is called barren. See how gracious God is? Because the moment people look at her skeptically and say that she, known to be a virgin, is with child, and she is with child, and he's the second member of the Trinity, and their eyebrows go up, she'll say, before you become overly skeptical, explain Elizabeth. For Zechariah and Elizabeth are, well, they've got six months of pregnancy on our hands here. And you see how God is so protective of Mary at this point that he already is using the forerunner even for her own spiritual protection so that she can explain what has just occurred in terms of this information. What do you do with this information? How do you explain it? Well, the angel offers perspective. Interruptions and insight go together. Mark this phrase. Four times in the Bible, you'll find this phrase. For nothing will be impossible with God. He was a pastor who did not believe that Jesus was divine. He was a pastor who did not believe in the virgin birth. He was a pastor who, along with his fiancée, were walking the streets in Washington, D.C., when the pastor then shared with her that he didn't believe at the virgin birth. Sarah, his fiancée, when she heard this, was so upset, broke off the engagement. He took out a Bible from his briefcase and threw it on the pavement, and they parted. She picked it up. Now the rest of the story. Sometime later, Sarah fell in love with a man by the name of Samuel. They married. When she learned that Samuel's brother was incarcerated in drug-related crimes, she wanted to find a way to reach out to him. And though she had not yet made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ, she thought that that Bible might be of help. And so... It was put in the hands of that one in prison by the name of Anthony Zioli. He was in a cell in Eastern State Penitentiary in Philadelphia. Began reading, so moved by the Holy Spirit, he gave his life to Jesus Christ, and in the flyleaf of the Bible he wrote, Save October 22nd, 1920, 3 p.m. He wrote, that night as I lay on my bed, I held that Bible tightly. I valued it. It had revealed to me the plan of salvation. And when he got out of prison, Anthony Zioli became known as the walking Bible and became a nationally and internationally known evangelist and radio pastor. Where would his life have been had there not been a young woman who broke off an engagement with a pastor who did not believe in the scriptures, who dropped the Bible, she picked it up and had it put in the hands of Zioli, who becomes an international pastor and led countless people to Christ. But the story does not end there. 
Paul's praying. Nothing will be impossible with God. Anthony Zioli has a son. His son's name was Billy Zioli. Billy Zioli oversaw multiple numbers of Christian films seen globally. Billy Zioli became a spiritual counselor to Gerald Ford during the Watergate time period, subsequent to Nixon's stepping down from office. Billy Zioli, furthermore, was used by God to start what is now BibleGateway.com, which I utilize whenever I want to check various translations to see how it compares to when I'm studying from the original languages. Out of all this, this takes place because a man on the streets of D.C. drops a Bible, an engagement's broken off, a young woman puts it up, picks it up, puts it in the hands eventually of someone in prison, and the rest is history, and the globe has been impacted because nothing is impossible with God. No accidents in time. Appointments with time. What do you do when God interrupts? You borrow Mary's words. She uses a visual. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. However you want to use me, God, use me. Let it be, according to your word. It was only after she went and put her words out in public that the angel then departs from her. She's on record. And the rest is history. So you're looking at these thoughts. You're pondering these phrases. You're thinking about a newspaper editor who writes an article about Christmas and says, it's impossible. How could I have written this? His colleagues look at the article and say, this is impossible. He could never have written this. You look at a pastor who does not believe in the scriptures, let alone the virgin birth, he drops the Bible, walks away, fiance picks it up, next thing we know somehow, someway, that Bible is put in the hands of a man incarcerated in a prison, he becomes a worldwide evangelist, has a son who counsels the president of the United States and that in turn leads to gateway publications and nothing will be impossible with God. I end with these words. Got any rivers you think are uncrossable? Got any mountains you can't tunnel through? God specializes in things thought impossible. God does things others cannot do. So, Father, right now there might be someone or a group of people in 
the inner circles or outer circles of each and every life here where we might be saying, no way is that person going to come to know the Lord. But then we claim verse 37. And we look back upon a newspaper editor. And we look forward to that point where there was this unbelieving pastor who drops his Bible out of anger. A fiancé who breaks off the engagement, gets the Bible eventually, and a man incarcerated. He comes to faith, global ministry, next generation, high-impact films for Jesus, ministry to the President of the United States, gateway publications. And Father, we look at all this, and we realize that you are the God of interrupt. But all the interruptions of our lives come insights for our lives. For nothing will be impossible with God. And for this, we give you all the glory and praise. In Jesus' name.